Good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. Bertrand Russell is a famous mathematician. He dabbled in philosophy. He was also a self-professed atheist. And he was once asked what he would say to God if he died and found himself after all of his denials and rejections of God, inconveniently standing in the presence of God. How would he account for his unbelief? What what would he say to God, the God that he had rejected and denied? Russell said he would look at God and ask him, Sir, why did you hide yourself? Why did you hide yourself? The so-called hiddenness of God is one of the top objections or arguments that many atheists and agnostics give for their unbelief. Their unbelief is not their fault, it's not due to their hardness of heart, not due to their blindness, their rebellion against God. Their unbelief is God's fault. God has hidden himself. God has not spoken clearly enough. God has not acted discernibly enough in this world. God has failed to provide sufficient evidence to meet their burden of proof. That objection is not new. It's not unique to the modern era. When Moses first confronted Pharaoh in Exodus 5, Pharaoh's response was defiant. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh, in his response to Moses, was arrogant. He was uninterested in knowing God. Or obeying God. And I think challenges like that from those who are hostile and defiant toward God, challenges like that threaten to shake the confidence of God's people. It certainly rattled Moses and the people of Israel. How was Moses supposed to carry out this assignment from God in the face of such hostility and rebellion? What could possibly get through to Pharaoh? And personally, How can you persevere in faith when the world around you actively challenges and denies God? In a world that questions and undermines and outright rejects God's word and God's authority, how can you keep your confidence in God? I think Exodus 7, 1 through 13 gives grace to help you persevere in faith and keep your confidence in God. In God. So I want to invite you, if you're physically able to stand with me, we stand because we love God and His Word. We read this like no other book. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them, 
Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Father, your people are attentive to you, attentive to your voice as you speak. And we give you thanks, as we have already done this morning, that you hear prayer, that you speak, that you're not silent, that you have not hidden yourselves, yourself, but you have revealed yourself to us. You've made yourself known so that we might know you. You have acted in history so that all the earth might know that you are the Lord, and we pray that that would be so, O oh God. Make it so, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Perhaps we should first, before we go any further, address the elephant in the room, or if you like, the serpent. Do we really believe this happened? I think that's the question that goes through every modern mind. You read a story like this and you just kind of go, I know what genre this sounds like. This is a fairy tale. This is a myth, a fable, great story. No way this actually happened. Do we actually believe that Aaron's staff turned into a serpent and swallowed up the staffs of the Egyptian magicians, which had also turned into serpents? Yes, I do. I do. People are often surprised to learn that Christians actually believe the Bible. Is true, but we do. We believe the Bible is the word of God. We believe that it's true and without error. The, the modern reader rejects stories like this as myth or fairy tale because they seem unscientific. But if the skeptic wants to object that no one could possibly turn a staff into a serpent, I find that to be rather arrogant. I mean, just because you don't know how to turn a staff into a serpent doesn't mean no one does. Right? This does say, after all, the Egyptian sorcerers did this by their secret arts, so I wouldn't be too surprised if you don't know them. And to that, the skeptic might say, don't be ridiculous. Snakes can't come from wooden sticks. And I would say to the skeptic, you first don't be ridiculous. I mean, the atheistic materialist, the, the one who believes there is no God, only physical matter, whatever you can touch, that's all that exists, he should find nothing here hard to believe. Nothing here more difficult than what he already believes. He believes snakes exist, right? And he believes those snakes evolved from non-living, inorganic matter over billions of years without any intelligent direction from God. So the only difference here is the speed of change, right? If the story said Moses threw down his staff and a hundred million years later it turned into a snake, he would say, oh, yeah, of course. I find that ridiculous. 
For the Christian who believes that this world exists by God's word and that everything that exists exists by God's command, not by random chance, there's nothing here that's hard to believe at all. He did speak the world into existence. So when he speaks to Moses and says, tell Aaron, throw down his staff, it's not hard to believe that at God's word, this could happen. We, we do live in a pretty miraculous world after all. It's his spoken world. God did start this section by saying, I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So when we come across signs and wonders, we should find them wonderful. Something inexplicable here. They're not ordinary, everyday occurrences. And they're also signs. That means they signify something. They point to something. And so the modern audience is primarily concerned in stories like this with trying to find the naturalistic, scientific explanation of what could have possibly happened here. There is a ton of literature out there on all of the ten plagues here with explanations of how these could have been naturally occurring phenomenon, given weather patterns and the locusts and their, you know, migration and all kinds of other things. All of that completely misses that these were signs and wonders that pointed to something. And that's our interest this morning. What do these point to? Perhaps we should also briefly recap Exodus thus far since we've been away for a while, since the end of November, we started Advent. In Exodus 1, we saw that Israel was suffering horrendous affliction in the land of Egypt, and then in Exodus chapter 2, a deliverer is born, providentially protected by God, grows up, steps out, only to be rejected by Israel and sent into exile, far away from Egypt. In Exodus 3 and 4, God encounters Moses at a burning bush, reveals himself there, promises to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And so in Exodus 5, that's when Moses first appears back in Egypt, goes before Pharaoh with God's demand, let my people go. That's Exodus 5 verse 1, to which Pharaoh responded, as I read already, I think this is crucial to remember and bear in mind throughout this whole story, Exodus 5 2, let me repeat it. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh responded to that first demand by making life miserable for the Israelites. He demanded that they continue meeting their quota of bricks, only this time they had to gather straw for themselves. And that led to a crisis of faith, if you remember. Crisis of faith. Exodus 5 ended with both Moses and the Hebrews questioning God. Doubting God. Exodus 6, God strengthened Moses' faith simply by repeating his name and his promises. There's nothing new in Exodus 6. God just rehearses. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. Exodus 6, 7 sums it up. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. But Exodus 6 also ended with the people refusing to listen to Moses. They were so discouraged, so downcast because of their burdens. And so it ends with Moses repeating the very same objections he had raised earlier. Exodus 6.30, Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Just how? It doesn't look possible. I don't see it at all. Pharaoh is stubborn, defiant, rebellious, has no regard for the Lord. How is this going to happen? That brings us now to Exodus chapter Seven, as we pick up the story. This passage here, verses 1 through 13, it, it serves as a transition from Moses' final objection at the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of what we traditionally call the ten plagues, which pick up in Exodus 
7, 14 through Exodus chapter 12. And, and this episode is commonly viewed as kind of a, a prelude or a precursor to the 10 plagues. Unlike the other plagues, this is the only one where there's no harm or destruction to people or animals or property. I guess unless you count the Egyptian staffs that were never seen again. It's also the only time that Pharaoh requests a sign. It starts with Pharaoh demanding, show me a sign, prove it. All the other times, Pharaoh is begging Moses to remove the signs. Think of this scene as a shot across the bow. It's a warning shot. And warning shots might be harmless. They don't actually hit anything, but they're not pointless. Warning shots display real force that indicate both the ability and the intent to use that force to achieve compliance. It's what a warning shot is. This is a, a warning shot that God sends to Pharaoh through Moses. In the face of Israel's unbelief and Moses' own uncertainty and Pharaoh's defiance, God himself speaks and acts here. God is clearly the main character in the entire book of Exodus, and he is the main character here. He reveals himself to the world by speaking and by working. In, in verses 1 through 6, God makes clear to Moses, God will be the one who does all the work. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. You shall speak all that I command you. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will multiply my signs and wonders. I will lay my hand on Egypt. I will bring my host, my people, out of the land of Egypt. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When? When I stretch out my hand. It's all about God and what he's about to do. Contrary to what skeptics like Bertrand Russell claim about the hiddenness of God, God has, in fact, acted and spoken openly in this world and because God has acted in history, you can be confident in him. I believe that's God's purpose in this text, to secure your unyielding confidence in God. To secure your unyielding confidence in God. That, that's how it's functioned for God's people for thousands of years. Your unyielding confidence in God, despite the unyielding hostility of those who reject God. God wants you to know him and trust him. God acts. God asserts himself in this world. And specifically, we see in Exodus 7 here that God acts to reveal himself to the world. He acts to uphold his word. He acts to judge the wicked. And he acts to deliver his people. Four things I want to show you. First, God acts to reveal himself to the world. That, that's the theme of Exodus. And it's God's own stated purpose in his own words right here in verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Everything that God says and everything that God does is intended to make known his name, his glory, his character, his reputation, his nature, his ways. Elsewhere, God says to Moses that the Hebrews, the people of Israel, they will know that I am the Lord. Here and in other places, God says Egypt will know that he is the Lord. God acts to make himself known. In Exodus 5.2, Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord, so I'm not going to act. Here God says, God is going to act so that Egypt and all the world will know he's the Lord. That's God's response. And by these specific works here in Exodus, God 
makes a name for himself, a reputation for himself that reverberates down through history for generations and generations. Nearly a thousand years after these events in Exodus, the, the Jewish exiles who had been in Babylon returned back to Israel and they pray in Nehemiah 9, 9 through 10, these words to God. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. That was a thousand years later. Here we are, 3,500 years later, still recounting, still rehearsing these glorious deeds because this is who God is. And he has made himself known to the world by acting in the world. God will be known. He will be worshipped by people from every tribe and tongue and language. And he has spoken and acted in history to make his name glorious. When God reveals himself, he exercises his own authority over the world that he has made. He doesn't just reveal random facts about himself, tidbits of information. He asserts himself and he lays authoritative claims on people. Verse 2, he says to Moses, you shall speak all that I command you. And the text repeats a couple times, so Moses and Aaron did as God said. And the message that God gives, it implicates Pharaoh. It's not just information, hey, take it or leave it, here's some interesting facts for you to know. No, tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. God's word always implicates people. You can't hear it and ignore it. It lays claims on you. It's not just a suggestion. God's word gets things done in this world. Verse 10 says, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. They went and they did. Things happened in the world because God had spoken. It's always the way it is. Things happen in the world because God speaks. And the God of Moses and Israel, the God of Exodus, is the same God who still speaks today. He speaks through Scripture. He's revealed himself in his Son. His word is living and active and authoritative, which means the way that you respond to God's word is the way that you respond to God himself. If you ignore his word, you ignore God. If you reject his word, you reject God himself. If you trust it and receive it and believe it, then you are trusting and receiving and believing God himself. How do you respond to his word? God speaks and acts to reveal himself to the world. God also acts to uphold his word. God informed Moses in verse 3 that he intended to harden Pharaoh's heart. And then in verse 4, he prepares Moses again, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then he also predicts to Moses in verse 9 that Pharaoh's going to demand a sign. When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle. In other words, God calls his own shots here. He knows the future, and he reveals it before it happens. One of the greatest legends in sports history is probably the story of Babe Ruth's called shot. Game three of the 1932 World Series between the New York Yankees and the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. The score was tied 4-4. The fifth inning, Babe Ruth comes to the plate. He took two strikes from pitcher Charlie Root. And then he gestured. He pointed. Some say he was just pointing back at the Cubs' dugout because they were razzing him Some say he was pointing at the hostile fans at Wrigley Field. Legend says he pointed out to center field, to the flagpole. And on the very next pitch, a curveball 
the Sultan of Swat sent that ball to the deepest part of center field right next to the flagpole. Did he predict where he was going to hit it on the next pitch? That's debated to this day. But that's what God does in Exodus 7. And throughout all of Scripture, he says what he's going to do, and then he does it exactly. And every word from God proves true because he backs up his word. He doesn't just send Moses in front of Pharaoh and then leave him there. He backs him up. He proves his word. He gives Moses and Aaron a sign for Pharaoh. Verse 13 says, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. Which, just a side note, people like Bertrand Russell who say they would have believed if they had more evidence, Pharaoh is great proof that no, you wouldn't. A stick could turn into an alligator right in front of you, a crocodile in the Nile, and you wouldn't believe it. You would want to have your own explanations for it, find some excuse there. But the key phrase in verse 13 is right at the end, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And that's how this scene comes to a close. As the Lord has said, by revealing the future before it happened, God prepared Moses to persevere through adversity. Without that last phrase, Pharaoh's hard-heartedness would probably provoke more despair, more unbelief in Moses and the people of Israel. It could have been tempted, tempting to think God's plan was not working, but those words change everything, don't they? This was God's plan. It's going according to God's plan. Fear not, history is unfolding according to God's plan, including Pharaoh's stubborn unbelief and his persistent cruelty. Doesn't that comfort your soul to know that the greatest rebellion, the most powerful people who are hostile toward God can't thwart God's plans but actually just further them? God is sovereign over all of it. He upholds his word, and every word of the Lord proves true. Third thing, God acts to judge the wicked. In verses four and five, God says, Pharaoh will not listen to you, and then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God describes the impending events as great acts of judgment. Recounting Israel's exodus from Egypt, Numbers 33.4, highlights these events as divine judgment. It says there, on their gods, speaking of the gods of Egypt, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. This is an act of judgment that we're about to see unfold in the coming chapters. God says he's going to lay his hand on Egypt. He's going to stretch out his hand against Egypt. One commentator remarks, one does not want to be on the receiving end whenever God stretches out his hand. Especially when the phrase is followed by that preposition against or toward. You don't want to be on the other end of that. I mentioned this in a sermon back in October, I think, when I preached this, that the most iconic image of Pharaoh in all of Egyptian art is Pharaoh grabbing his enemy by the head, poised with his other hand with a mace to strike him in the head and deal the death blow. It's no accident that God chooses that language here. I'm going to strike Egypt. In fact, what we call the ten plagues, did you know the English word plague has its root to mean strike? The Latin word plaga means to strike. 
in Jewish history, they call these the ten strikes or the ten blows. God is acting to judge. Even the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is an act of judgment. Pharaoh's not an innocent bystander. He's not a neutral observer. He's not an open-minded inquirer. Right? When, he's, when he says, who is the Lord, he's not saying, like, please, teach me. Instruct me that I might know him and walk in his ways. Who is he that I should listen to him? Not interested. When he says, prove yourselves, he's not willing to be convinced. That's, he doesn't say that in good faith. Pharaoh says it like, I'm the judge. You present the evidence to me, and I will rule. And no matter what Moses does, Pharaoh's going to find the evidence lacking, insufficient evidence. Remember, this is the precursor to the plagues. It's just a warning shot. It's, it's brief. It's relatively tame. Some sticks, a stick eats some other sticks. But it foreshadows the catastrophic finale at the Red Sea. It's a sign. It is indicating something. It is a warning to Pharaoh. Aaron's staff swallowing up the staffs of the Egyptian magicians is just the warning. When everything is said and done, Pharaoh and his entire army are going to be swallowed up by the Red Sea. Exodus 15, 12, the people of Israel are going to be standing on the other side and they are going to sing to God, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. And here God is warning Pharaoh, this is what's coming for you. As the righteous judge of all the earth, God executes judgment against the wicked. That is, God holds this world, the people, the rulers, the nations of this world accountable to his moral law. As modern people, we don't tend to think that God does this at all anymore. We think he did this thousands and thousands of years ago, but since then he just lets people do whatever they want. We tend to think that whatever happens on earth is simply the result of the laws of biology, the laws of physics... Man's free will, we are self-determining, that's all. And all of human history can be explained in terms of those. We tend not to see any connection between history and the moral law of God. But we should, because you'll be historically illiterate if you don't see those connections. Even among those who believe that there is a God and that he will judge the world, many people tend to think of that only as a future event that will happen on the very last day with no judgments from God at any other point in history. But the Bible reveals God as the righteous judge who presides over history, over the peoples of this world. Psalm 9, 7 through 8, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Isaiah prays in Isaiah 26, 9, When your judgments are in the earth the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. How does God execute justice in the world? Ezekiel 14, 21 mentions a few ways. I send upon Jerusalem my four disasters, disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. God has all kinds of means at his disposal to judge the nations and to call people to account I think the inability to recognize God's righteous judgments throughout human history on earth is due more to biblical illiteracy and ignorance and not God's lack of activity. It's not that God is not present and working in the world. And according to Exodus 7, it's one more offense to the modern mind, God's jurisdiction extends to all the nations. 
think a lot of people these days get this wrong. Even Christians sometimes think this way, as though God's word and God's law only applies to the people who acknowledge it. Like, if you opt in, then you're under God's rule. But if not, then you make up your own rules. According to that view, if you're not a Christian, then God's word has no authority over you. So, So God's moral law governing, say, sexual morality only applies to those who acknowledge God. Everybody else is off the hook. That's not how it works. What authority does God have to call Pharaoh from Egypt, who doesn't worship him, to account? All authority. Because he's the God of all peoples. He's the God of all the earth. God warns here that he's about to call Pharaoh and the Egyptians to account. All nations answered him. Pharaoh's not free to ignore God's demands or declare his independence from God. And if that was true in Exodus 7, when God delivered his word to ancient Egypt through Moses, how much more true is that today when God has spoken to the world through his son and delivered the gospel? The the author of Hebrews in the New Testament helps us make connections like this. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, talking about Old Testament, revelation of God's word and his law there, saying, look, God punished those who ignored his word in history. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Delivered not by angels, but by the Son of God himself. That's a warning to the world. Pay attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Do not reject God and his authority. He will call all nations to account. It's good news for the world that Jesus came and died for our sins. Rejecting that message brings wrath. God's authority is real. He acts in history to judge the wicked. Finally, God acts to deliver his people. The events of the Exodus are not only great acts of judgment against Egypt. They are simultaneously deeds of deliverance toward Israel. At the same time, the very same acts, I I think that's important to see, the same acts that are judgments against Egypt are the very acts that are deeds of deliverance toward Israel. Exodus 7, 4 through 5, then I will lay my hand on Egypt punishment to Egypt, and bring my hosts, that is, my armies, my troops, that's what that word means, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God's doing two things through the same acts, judging Egypt and delivering Israel, and deliverance was always the promise. That was always the promise here from Exodus 3, 7 and 8 at the burning bush. God told Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. When the Israelites grumbled against Moses because Pharaoh made life miserable and demanded bricks without straw, God comforted them with this promise of deliverance. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Acts of judgment are deeds of deliverance. At the same time, when God restrains the wicked, when he puts an end to their wickedness, he is acting to deliver his people, which is why you don't ever have to be afraid in the world as God governs history. God deals with sinful nations. 
puts an end to their wickedness. You can rejoice that God is acting in deliverance for his people. The good news for Israel was that this deliverance was never dependent on Pharaoh being compliant. God promised he was personally going to bring it about. Just the fact that there's this random verse in here, it seems random to us, this comment about how old Moses and Aaron were. Did you catch that? By the way, Moses was 80 and Aaron was 83 at the time. Octogenarians. We're familiar with that. These guys are not delivering based on their own ability, their strength, their power. God is going to do this in the most miraculous way. And did you catch that God refers to these powerless, oppressed, enslaved people as my armies? You're going to bring my armies out of Egypt? Pharaoh certainly did not think of the Israelites as an army. That points to God's redemptive work. He doesn't just save them out of slavery. He redeems them into a new life and leads them out victorious with a victory that they did not win, a battle that they didn't fight. God's acts of judgment and deliverance, they're not two separate actions. They're one and the same. Deuteronomy 4.34 describes these events like this. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did, notice these two words, for you. God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. When God fought against Egypt, he fought for his people. And likewise, it's at the cross where we see God's greatest act of judgment and his greatest act of deliverance in one. At the cross, God judged his sinless son as though he were guilty of all your sin so that he might deliver you from your sin and the punishment your sin deserves. The cross is judgment and deliverance at once. That's where God crushed his son in righteous judgment against sin and death in order to deliver you from sin and death forever. It's at the cross where God acted most clearly in history. If the Exodus made a name for God for generations and thousands and thousands of years, the cross surpasses it. That is where God acted to reveal himself most fully and completely to the world. That is where God has acted to uphold his word and fulfill all of his covenant promises. So has God hidden himself? Not at all. He has spoken and he has acted in this world. He's revealed himself in his words and in his works and ultimately in his son. But the word of God always cuts two ways. Some are softened by his word. Some are hardened by it. But nobody can say in the end like Bertrand Russell that God has failed to make himself known. God has made himself known. Some see that as beautiful and sweet and glorious and good, and others hate God. And the more they see of his work in the world, the more they despise God. So today, if, if you know him as the Lord, which is his purpose, rejoice in his grace. Realize you don't see him and know him and trust him and love him because you were more deserving or more 
astute or observant or more perceptive or more moral than someone like Pharaoh. You see him because he has acted graciously toward you. And, and if you have not yet heeded his warnings, if, you, if you've not yet turned from your sins and put your hope in Jesus Christ alone, if you've not been reconciled to this holy, righteous God through Christ Jesus, then heed these warnings. This is meant to serve the world for all time. God upholds his word. God judges the nations. God acts in history. And he has, in Christ Jesus, provided a way for you to be saved. So confess your sins to him today. Call on him. Rely on Jesus Christ alone. He will deliver you from your slavery to sin. He will deliver you from death, that you might live with him and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, I think of how the psalmist prayed about the the kinds of challenges we face when those around us who don't know you mock and taunt and say things like, where is your God? And the psalmist just answers, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Thank you. May that be our confidence. You do all you please. You act. You assert yourself. You speak. You reveal. You are active in this world. Father, would you make us corporately as a church body, make us a family of people who are utterly convinced that you are that you exist, that you work, that you speak, that you reward those who seek you, that you uphold your word, that you're active in history. Increase our confidence in you. And through us, get great glory for yourself. Make a name. Make a name for yourself, O God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.